Thank you very much indeed again for uh, your welcome. Um, it's a privilege for me to be here this morning. I can I say too what a privilege it has been over this last couple of years to journey with you during the interregnum. So I want to say thank you very much to you. My eyesight is not what it used to be. And if I was to take my glasses off, I'm afraid you would all look horribly out of focus. Sometimes that can be better, but you'd all look horribly out of focus. But the problem is, if I keep my glasses on, I can't really see to read or do anything close up. So the last time I was at the opticians, he mentioned that dreaded word, bifocals. I mean, can you believe that in one of such a tender young age? A little while ago, I went to the cinema, and I went to see a remake of a classic sci-fi film from 1959, Journey to the Centre of the Earth. But I didn't just go to any old cinema. I went to the cinema at Ashton-under-Lyne. I know it's quite an exotic location, but I went there because it was showing the film in 3D. And you put these weird and wonderful glasses on that made you feel like you should have gone to Specsavers, and you sat and you watched the film, and it was absolutely amazing. You had dinosaurs jumping out of the screen at you, and these weird creatures that seemed to be buzzing around the auditorium. People were jumping, and you really felt that you were part of the action. And I guess the truth is that it is no good wearing reading glasses if you're driving down the N6. And it's no good wearing the glasses you need for distances if you're doing cross-stitch. And if you wear ordinary glasses in a 3D cinema, you just will not get the point and feel part of the action. And I suppose that when you read any great literature, whether you're talking about Chaucer or Shakespeare or Tolstoy, maybe more contemporary writers like Doris Lessing, Harold Pinter, winners of the Nobel Prize for Literature, if you want to understand what the writer is talking about and what it all means, then you need the right lens of understanding inside your head. And it seems to me the same is true when you come to read about Jesus in the Bible. Because if you want to understand what the writer is talking about and what it all means to be part of the action, then with the Holy Spirit's help, you need the eyes of your understanding opened. You need those three-dimensional glasses. And it seems to me that passage that was read to us earlier is a case in point. What did it look like to you? Maybe just a lot of people healed and a lot of people fed? Well, put those three-dimensional glasses on and there is so much more to say. So verse 29 tells us how Jesus was walking along the shore of 
Lake Galilee. He goes on up into the mountains and he sits down. And great crowds come to him, bringing the blind, the crippled, the deaf, the mute, and many others. And Jesus healed them all. And the people are amazed. But hang on a minute. Matthew has already told us about lots of people who Jesus healed. He's told us how Jesus healed a man with leprosy, Peter's mother-in-law, a centurion's servant, two demon-possessed men, a paralytic, two blind men, many others. Why does he make the 28 chapters of his gospel even longer by telling us about all these people? Jesus healed. Well, put those three-dimensional glasses on and you begin to get the point. You see, Matthew is hoping that his readers will have in their minds some of the key prophetic texts from the Old Testament that speak in such beautiful poetry about the time when God would move in power to rescue Israel from all her troubles. I mean, that great Old Testament prophet Isaiah, writing hundreds of years earlier, writes about the time when God would move in power to save his people. Do you know what he writes? Isaiah 35. When he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf The lame will leap like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. And hundreds of years later, Jesus has come into the world, and you tell me what is happening. The lame can walk, the blind can see, the deaf can hear. Those who cannot speak can indeed sing for joy. And these wonderful acts of love and power are not just amazing miracles. They are signs. They're three-dimensional signs, if you like, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah who has come into the world and who is fulfilling all these great Old Testament prophecies. If you like, here at last... Is what Israel's been waiting for all these years, if only they could see. And yet the tragedy is, the history of Israel shows so often they couldn't see Jesus. And of course, tragically, the same is true today, isn't it? I mean, 40 years ago, that's 10 years before Rebecca was born, John Lennon was saying that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. He didn't know what would go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Thirty years later, Liam Gallagher from Oasis was saying John Lennon was right. Oasis were bigger than Jesus and they'd be even bigger than the Beatles. And you speak to people in Rossendale 
about who Jesus is. And I wonder what sort of answers you'd get. The familiar ones of a good man, great teacher, religious leader. Maybe something like the disillusioned celebrity from the musical Jesus Christ Superstar. Do you remember how it goes? In Gethsemane, Jesus once thought he knew who he was. Now in Gethsemane, he's not so sure. Then I was inspired. Now I'm sad and tired. Looking at Jesus with the wrong glasses on. Oh, but with the Holy Spirit's help, do you know who Jesus is? The eternal Son of God. The one who laid aside the glory, the riches, the majesty of heaven. Humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. Exalted to the right hand of the Father. Reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. Returning one day in glory and majesty and power. The only way of salvation. Have you got the right glasses on? And it is this Jesus who looks out upon the crowd and he calls his disciples to him and he says I have compassion on these people they've already been with me for three days and they've had nothing to eat I don't want to send them away hungry because they may collapse on the way I tell you this there must be something about the love and the power and the charisma of Jesus if people wanted to stay with him for three days with nothing to eat. I wish we wanted to stay with him half as much as that. And he has compassion on this great crowd. I've been fortunate enough to go to places like Old Trafford a few times, uh, Stamford Bridge, Turf Moor, not quite so fortunate there Uh, Twickenham and it's amazing isn't it to be in these great stadiums and at Twickenham uh, the Six Nations you look out 75,000 people and you just stop and you think for a moment you think each person here is someone who desperately needs Jesus and Jesus looks out on this crowd And he has compassion upon them. Don't read very much about the emotions of Jesus in the Gospels, do we? I guess we read about the joy of Jesus, the sorrow of Jesus, the anger of Jesus, the wonder of Jesus, the thankfulness of Jesus. But I suspect the emotion of Jesus we read about more than any other is the compassion of Jesus. And Jesus has compassion on this crowd because they are hungry. And with all my heart, I want to say to you this morning that whatever your needs are, Jesus has compassion on you. He has compassion on you in your financial struggles. Those two words we've come to dread credit crunch debt struggle to make 
ends meet. He has compassion on you. He has compassion on you in your family struggles. Maybe that marriage that is on the rocks. Those children who are breaking your heart. Burden of caring for someone you love so much. He has compassion on you in your emotional struggles. The pain of bereavement. You know how you feel. You feel as if something within you has just been ripped out of you. The frustration of singleness. The ache of loneliness. He has compassion on you in your work struggles. That fear of redundancy that's just been hanging over your head all these months. That pressure to compromise. That struggle to hit the targets week in, week out. He has compassion on you. Whatever your need is today, I just want you to know that Jesus is a compassionate saviour. He has compassion on you. And of course the implication here, as elsewhere in the Gospels, is that Jesus already knows what you need even before you ask him. But I wonder if that is how you see Jesus. That compassionate saviour who meets broken people where they are. Have you got the right glasses on? And of course, faced with this huge crowd, do you remember what the disciples said? Well, they said this, a bit puzzling really. Where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? Now, what's so puzzling about that? Well, you turn back one chapter in Matthew to Matthew 14, and you will see that Jesus has already fed 5,000 people with a boy's pack lunch. Now, wouldn't you think the disciples would say, Lord, do you remember that time when you fed 5,000? Well, we've done a bit of a head count here. We think there's maybe round about 4,000. Surely you can just feed them. But they do not say that, do they? Where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? And of course, as you may imagine, there are some cynics who perhaps don't take the Bible very seriously who suggest that poor old Matthew has just got himself in a bit of a muddle. And these two accounts, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, they're just different accounts of the same miracle. But even a superficial reading shows that Matthew clearly regards them as being distinct. I mean, the numbers are different for a start. 5,000 and 4,000. The location is different. The culture is different. The 5,000 are mainly Jews. The 4,000 are mainly Gentiles. The quantities of food are different. The amounts left over are different. The word for basket in each of the accounts is different. Even the time of year seems to be different. Remember that little phrase in the feeding of the 5,000 about the grass being green? Maybe suggesting spring? Well, here there's no mention of green grass. Maybe the ground appears to be hard, suggesting late summer. Clearly they're distinct. So why do the disciples say, where could we get enough bread? Why don't they say, Lord, you remember that time 
Well, actually, I think it fits in very well with what we know about the disciples, doesn't it? And their failure so often to see Jesus with the right glasses on. Their lack of faith, their lack of expectancy, their slowness to understand and get the point. Oh, and by the way, don't point the finger too quickly because we are not so very different, are we? There'll be times in your life and my life when we've seen God working in wonderful ways in the past, really helping us in times of heartache and trouble, answering our prayers, sometimes doing more than we ask or even imagine. And yet so often, when we're faced with a new heartache, a new situation of difficulty, we've got this habit of forgetting the past, haven't we? And failing to trust God in the present. We are not so very different. And Jesus asked the disciples, how many loaves do you have? And they say seven. And a few small fish. And Jesus gets the crowd to sit on the ground. He takes the loaves and the fish. He gives thanks to God. He gives them to the disciples who in turn distribute them to the people. And the number of people who fed was about 4,000, not counting women and children. But again, hang on a minute. I mean, Jesus acts and feeds this huge crowd of 4,000 people and the disciples haven't got any faith. No trust, no expectancy. Remember what they said? Where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? No faith, no expectancy, and Jesus feeds a multitude. A little while ago, I achieved one of my great ambitions. I finally got to the top of Blackpool Tower. I don't know if you've been up Blackpool Tower recently, but I think back in 1998, they installed something they called the Walk of Faith. And the Walk of Faith is essentially a glass panel in the floor. It's, I think, two inches thick, and it's round about 280 feet, sorry, 380 feet, I think, above the promenade. And there is a sign up there, and it says something like, you will crack long before this does. Now, I'm quite fortunate with heights. They don't particularly bother me, and I was quite happy to walk up and down the grass panel and uh, look at the tiny little people on the prom below. But there were an awful lot of people up there who really did not want to do the walk of faith. And we are talking about grown men here as well, by the way. Now, it didn't help particularly because uh, the girl standing next to me just sort of turned to me and said, well, you know, it's got to crack sometime. <laughs> That's not the most helpful thing to say when you've got a lot of nervous people up there. But if you look at the publicity material, it says that the glass panel can stand the weight 
of five baby elephants. How they got those elephants up there, and, I mean, I've no idea. The walk of faith. And faith is so important, isn't it, in the Christian life. And there are different kinds of faith. There's saving faith. When we first put our trust in Jesus. And I hope for you, as it was for me, uh, many years ago, the best day of my life. There's the faith we exercise every day in the Christian life, the walk of faith, as we follow Jesus, as we serve Jesus, as we trust him, as we journey with him. Maybe for some of us there is crisis faith. And if you're honest, hand on heart, you only really turn to God in a time of trouble. It's often been said, hasn't it? No atheists in the trenches. But it does strike me that sometimes when you read a passage like this, Jesus acts in such love and such power when there is no faith at all and no expectancy, no real hope. Where could we get enough bread? And I wonder if there is a situation in your life where you really haven't got any faith, if you're honest. No expectancy, no expectation that things are going to be, ever going to be any different. That burden that has just been weighing you down for months. That illness that is sapping your strength. That marriage that seems to be so stale. That relationship that has just broken down. I don't know, maybe someone's got to make a phone call this afternoon. Situation at work that just seems insurmountable. It just strikes me that sometimes when we haven't got a lot of faith and we really don't expect things to be very different, sometimes Jesus steps in and he acts in such love and such power. And that is the case here. No faith, no expectancy, 4,000 people fed. What an amazing saviour. Well, when everybody is eaten and is satisfied, we read that the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Isn't that wonderful? This huge crowd is fed and there is still plenty left over. But you know, with Jesus, there's always more than enough, isn't there? There's more than enough forgiveness for all of our sin and I don't care what you've done how you've lived or what you've been guilty of there's more than enough forgiveness there's more than enough grace for every need and some of your needs this morning I'm sure are very very great there's more than enough grace there's more than enough love to never let you go and maybe some of you feel a long way away from Jesus this morning there's more than enough power to enable you to live for him. And maybe next week is a week you're not looking forward to. With Jesus, there's always more than enough. Well, my eyesight, I'm afraid, is not what it used to be. And looks like I'll be down the opticians again soon. And you know, when you come to read about Jesus in the Bible... And it's so, so important, isn't it, that with the Holy Spirit's help, we have the eyes of our understanding opened. 
that we might see Jesus as he really is. And I just leave you with that question. What have you seen this morning? Have you got those three-dimensional glasses on? Have you seen Jesus in all his love and glory and majesty and power? Amen.